0: As I said, we're starting something a little bit different tonight, a study of the Second London Baptist Confession. My task tonight, so this is not a Bible study, but my task tonight, the succeeding weeks will see, feel more like a Bible study, taking each particular chapter on a doctrine, let's say the doctrine of Scripture, the doctrine of God, and unpacking that. But I've been tasked with giving you a history lesson tonight which terrifies me, all of you who were bored to death in history class, okay? So let's see if we can keep your interest. Some of you may have seen a couple weeks ago, there was a a news article going around uh, about a restaurant in Southern California, and it was a restaurant that had a practice sort of like Mission Barbecue, if you've ever been there, at noon, right? They play the national anthem, and the diners all... Most of them, hopefully, stand out of respect for the national anthem. So this restaurant, Southern California, did this, and some TikToker was severely triggered by this. They recorded it, they posted it, and they called it the most dangerous situation they'd ever been in. Apparently, they felt threatened by this dramatic show of patriotism. And other people commented on it, calling it terrifying and like a horror movie. (laughs) Well, sadly, this dear person seems, feels very little loyalty to a nation that they are richly benefiting from. And my guess is it's not entirely their fault. It's probably a narrative that they've been fed by the media and by their education system. Is the history of our country perfect? No. Is the heritage of our country perfect? No. And yet I would suggest they lack even a proper respect and a proper appreciation for our imperfect history and heritage. When I was first introduced to the Second London Baptist Confession 14 years ago, I was intimidated. I thought, yeah, doctrine's important. But this seems like overkill, right? I mean, does it really need to be that long and that detailed? You know, I was used to a confession that was a page or two. We need a whole book to say what we believe. But over time, watching the growing tendency to compromise in church practice and the growing popularity of false teaching, I have an equally growing appreciation... For the beauty of theological clarity and theological precision. And as I studied the history of the Second London Confession in preparation for tonight, I had a fresh appreciation and respect not only for this document, but for my own heritage as a Baptist. Now, I'm holding up Jeremy Walker's, you know, lightly revised or lightly edited, rooted and grounded his copy of the Second London Baptist Confession. This document didn't exist in a vacuum, okay? And it wasn't created in a vacuum. It had a historical and a theological context. Hopefully, I can help you understand that better tonight. So let's get into the history. 334 years ago, a General Assembly of Baptist Churches from England and Wales, I'm kind of pumped about that because Rees is a Welsh name, so these are my people. The the Baptists in England and Wales met in London in 1689. This is 170 years after Luther's 95 theses that in many ways sparked the Protestant Reformation. So hopefully you've got a little bit of a time frame here. 333 years ago and 170 years after Luther. It's the first time such an assembly was convened. 108 Baptist churches from England and Wales were represented at this assembly. 33 pastors and messengers from these churches formally signed the confession on behalf of the churches they represented. Now, although the Second London Baptist Confession is usually called the 1689, it actually was written over 20 years earlier. The the meeting in 1689 was to formally promote the confession to their fellow Baptist churches and a formal presentation of their doctrine to be considered by their Reformed Presbyterian and Congregational brothers. And I find the history intriguing that leads up to this significant moment. I hope you will, too. But even before we look at the writing of the Confession in 1677, we got to go back 40 years earlier, 1644. Now, let me try to help you understand the religious landscape in England In the years leading up to this, the religious power in England was the Church of England. Okay, and the Church of England was basically Catholicism. But instead of being led by the Pope, who were they led by? The king, right? The monarch. It was a state church. It was religion with the power of the government. And world history tells us that usually doesn't go well. Okay? So every good citizen, I'm putting that in quotes, every good citizen of England was sprinkled as a baby and they were just in the church. There was no concept of a church composed of born-again believing Christians. And so it followed the common trajectory of most, if not all, state churches and eventually was filled with corruption and politics. And along came the Puritans. And the Puritans condemned the corruption, and they condemned the false Christianity that was merely a formality. And they preached what Christ preached. You must be born again. That was their significant message. There must be a new birth. There must be a fundamental transformation by the Holy Spirit that results in a God-honoring life. Now, some of the Puritans remained in the Church of England and they tried to reform from within, just like Luther originally tried with the Catholics. But many of them also left and they became known as separatists because they separated from the Church of England or nonconformists because they wouldn't conform to the state church. And these nonconformists were persecuted by the Church of England. They were banned from meeting. You could not meet as a church. If you weren't part of the Church of England, you couldn't do this. The clergy were not recognized. Any pastor caught meeting who wasn't Church of England was fined or imprisoned. And we got Pilgrim's Progress out of that because men like John Bunyan, Samuel Rutherford. Some of you have been blessed by his book, The Letters of of Samuel Rutherford. Men like that spent years in prison. Now, the most powerful influential group of separatists were the Presbyterians. Because they always have all the brains and the money, right? So, the Presbyterians were the most powerful. And then second to them were the Congregationalists. Now, the Presbyterians, they had very similar doctrine, what we would call today Reformed doctrine, but differed over the authority of the church. Presbyterians had a hierarchical structure of church authority. So there was a group of leaders who had authority over several churches, a group of churches. Congregationalists, as their name suggests, were like Baptists. They believed the authority resided here in the local congregation. A couple of well-known congregational Puritans, Thomas Goodwin, who wrote The Heart of Christ, one of my favorite books. Many of you May agree with me, one of your favorite Puritan books is The Bruised Reed, Richard Sibbs. Thomas Goodwin was the pastor of Richard Sibs. Richard Sibbs followed him in that church. So Goodwin mentored Sibbs, and I am forever grateful. And then a guy named John Owen, you may have heard of, who wrote The Mortification of Sin. These were congregational Puritans. So Both the Presbyterians and the Congregationalists, very similar doctrine, differed on church authority, but both practiced infant baptism. And some people were bothered by that. Our ancestors. In the late 1630s and 1640s, several members of the Separatist Congregational Church in London became convinced that baptism was only for those who gave evidence of a new birth. They became convinced of believers' baptism. And as peacefully and quietly as they could, they left the Congregational Church and eventually started seven new Baptist churches in London. Now, these new churches were viewed with suspicion and some hostility by their Presbyterian and Congregational brothers, Often due to a misunderstanding of their doctrine or just plain prejudice toward them. And they were commonly falsely called Anabaptists. Okay? Anabaptists were the distant crazy cousins of the Baptists. I say that respectfully, kinda. So they minimized the authority of Scripture. Okay? Scripture was less important. They emphasized the quote, spirit. So prophecy, ecstatic experience, all of that. They were unbiblical in most of their beliefs and practices. And one thing that got them in a lot of trouble, they rejected civil government altogether as part of the evil world. They were widely persecuted by the reformers. But because they also rejected infant baptism, they got lumped in with us, with the Baptists baptist anabaptist whatever it's all the same that was sort of the thinking so at the time these seven new baptist churches are forming okay and they're being misunderstood and they're being despised massive political changes are happening in england this is during the time of the english civil wars you may have heard of oliver cromwell Two civil wars were fought in England between those who supported the monarchy and those led by Cromwell who wanted uh, parliament to, government, to govern. They wanted a government by the representatives of the people. Hmm, what an idea, instead of a king. Well, many of the Puritans supported Cromwell. In fact, Thomas Goodwin and John Owen were actually chaplains to Cromwell. And Parliament's army won. The monarchy was overthrown, and therefore the state church lost their power. They were also overthrown. And all of a sudden, Presbyterians and Congregationalists have new freedom and growing power. And about that time, the Westminster Assembly is convened to compose a formal confession of faith. The Westminster Confession, completed in 1646... Still the official statement of Presbyterian doctrine. Okay. Two years before the Westminster was published, our little group of seven Baptist churches collaborated on the first London Baptist Confession in 1644. Because they were being falsely labeled as Anabaptists, they wanted to show, no, <laughs> we're not them. Our doctrine is biblical. We are orthodox. Yes, they differed with their Presbyterian brothers and their congregational brothers on some issues, but their primary goal was to show the similarity of their doctrine with their Reformed brothers. Well, this first Baptist confession was not all that well received. Hardline Presbyterians still rejected it. In fact, one Even accused Baptists of covering rat poison with a great deal of sugar to hide their heresy. Ouch. How many of you love a good underdog story? Yeah, I I do. I, I just can't help it. One of my favorites from sports. A year after I moved back to Missouri from Kentucky and was really getting into football again, The quarterback for the St. Louis Rams, Trent Green, suffered a major injury early in the season. Kurt Warner was his backup, and he took over for the rest of the season. Nobody in the NFL had given Kurt Warner a serious chance. In fact, just a year or two before this season, he was stocking shelves in a grocery store. (laughs) But his passing style perfectly fit the offensive strategy of the Rams... And ultimately, he led them to win the Super Bowl that season. The movie recently made about him is titled American Underdog. I love a good underdog story. So the history of our confession kind of excites me. Nobody liked us. (laughs) The Church of England hated us and persecuted us. Even our fellow separatists despised us and mistrusted us. But nevertheless, during Cromwell's Commonwealth, say that three times real fast. During Cromwell's Commonwealth, the Baptist churches multiplied in England, in London, and in the country villages. One other important step before our confession, in 1658, the congregational churches revised the Westminster Confession. So they revised the Presbyterian Confession to reflect their doctrine of the church. That was called the Savoy Declaration. And again, our two beloved Puritans, Thomas Goodwin, John Owen, were involved in writing that. And it was that document, the Savoy, that Baptists used as their basic framework for the Second London Baptist Confession. Two years after the Savoy, 1660, everything changes again. King Charles II is restored to the throne. The Commonwealth is over. The Church of England is also restored to power. They are once again the only legal church. And suddenly Presbyterians, Congregationalists, and Baptists are in the trenches together. Funny how persecution does that, huh? And they stood side by side in defiance of the state church. And pastors were again severely punished with fines or prison if they met. The Second London Confession was written in 1677 during that season of persecution. Some Baptist pastors died in prison rather than deny the truths of this document. I don't know about you, but when men are willing to suffer and die for the truths of a confession, I think it's worth paying attention to. Don't you? There's one other event that sparked the writing of this confession in 1677, and that happened three years earlier. 1674, a man named Thomas Collier published a book. (laughs) Collier was a Baptist evangelist and church planter in Western England, and he wrote a theological book strongly opposing Calvinistic Baptist doctrine, and at the same time teaching a heretical view of the Trinity. So, our English Baptist forefathers have been trying to emphasize their doctrinal unity with the Presbyterians and Congregationalists, trying to show they're not heretics, and along comes Collier's book, attacking Reformed doctrine and teaching a heretical view of the Trinity and claiming to represent Baptist doctrine. And so these Baptist churches in London and Bristol decided, we need to publish a confession of the doctrines we commonly agree on as Baptists in England. We don't want Collier leading other Baptist churches astray, and we don't want our separatist brothers thinking he's the voice Of Baptist belief and even getting even more skeptical about us. So that brings us at last to the 1689 General Assembly. At this point it's been over 40 years since their first confession but Baptists were still misunderstood and persecuted. You can hear this in the introduction to the confession. Our purpose was to inform and satisfy those who did not thoroughly understand what our principles were or who were prejudiced against our profession of faith. These difficulties arose because of the strange way our convictions were presented to them by some significant men who had taken very wrong measures and who accordingly led others into misapprehensions both of us and of them." So the 108 churches represented, recommended the Second London Confession to all the Baptist churches in England. And they invited their other separatist brothers who differed on baptism to at least consider what they believed. They wrote, one thing that weighed heavily with us to carry out this work was not only to give a full account of ourselves to those Christians who have a different opinion about the subject of baptism, but also the benefit that might be obtained by those who have any profit from our work. So the confession was to be distinguishing, but not divisive. They had no desire to be original. So they emphasized their unity on core doctrines with their Reformed and Presbyterian brothers. They say, having found no problem with the method selected by the assembly, they're talking about the Westminster Assembly, the Presbyterians, having no, found no problem with that, and afterward by those who follow the congregational way, we rapidly concluded that it was best to keep the same order in our own new confession. We also concluded that it would be best to follow their example in making use of the very same words with both of them in these matters, in which our faith and doctrine is the same as theirs. We therefore did this to demonstrate as much and as clearly as possible our agreement with both the Presbyterians and Congregationalists in all the fundamental articles of the Christian religion. We also wanted to convince everyone that we have no desire to clog religion with new words. But we readily assent to that pattern of sound words which has been in agreement with the Holy Scriptures used by others before us. Even though some of these brothers they're writing to have persecuted them, marginalized them, looked down on them, they show great respect and honor. Listen, listen how they speak to them. In those things in which we differ from others, we have expressed ourselves openly and plainly so that no one will have grounds to suspect anything secretly hidden in our hearts that we do not want the world to know about. At the same time, we hope That we have also observed those rules of modesty and humility that will make our freedom in this respect inoffensive, even to those whose opinions are different from ours. There is one thing more which we sincerely declare and which we earnestly hope you will believe, namely that controversy is the last thing we have aimed at in all we've done in this matter. We hope that the freedom of a straightforward explanation of our principles and opening our hearts to our brothers will not be received as an insult or injury from us. So obviously they show great esteem and respect for these Reformed brothers. And yet on certain points they had to disagree if they were convinced the scripture spoke otherwise. Unity was most important, but differences do matter. And it was Baptist doctrine of the church that set them apart. Yet they still had a strong desire to relate with their Presbyterian and congregational brothers in love and peace and cooperate in gospel efforts. Listen to this. And oh, that other controversies and debates being laid to rest The only future care and concern of all those identified with the name of our blessed Redeemer might be to walk humbly with their God and in the exercise of all love and meekness towards each other to perfect holiness in the fear of the Lord, each one endeavoring to have his conduct worthy of the gospel and vigorously promote in others the practice of true and undefiled religion in the sight of God and our Father." So can you hear what drove the promotion of of this confession? A couple of things primarily. The challenge of false teaching. They wanted to preserve and guard distinct Baptist understanding of the scriptures. This is what is commonly and consistently believed among us as Baptists. And it should not be corrupted. And then second, a desire for credibility and unity with other churches who held similar views in most areas of doctrine. They didn't write this to be new and original, to say, oh, look at us, pay attention to us. And they didn't write it to say, this is why we're right and you all are wrong. No, it was written to emphasize, look how much we agree on. Now, there's one last historical step to take from England to the New World. To the American colonies. One of the primary Baptist pastors leading the 1689 Assembly was Benjamin Keach. His son Elias Keach came to the American colonies. And guess what he brought with him to Pennsylvania? The second London Baptist Confession. And the Philadelphia Baptist Association was formed in 1707 and adopted this 1689 confession. And the Philadelphia Association became a pattern for later Baptist associations in America. In 1766, 10 years before the Declaration of Independence, the Baptist Association in Virginia and in South Carolina also adopted this confession. Now, I find that a little bit humorous. Why? Well, back in the 1990s, Way back, you know, in the dark ages, in the 90s, I was one of the very few Calvinists in the Southern Baptist Convention. And I don't know how many times I was told that my beliefs weren't Baptist. (laughs) Bless their hearts. They just didn't know Baptist history very well. Because our confession is very much a part of original Baptist roots in this country. Well, let me close with three applications from the teaching tonight. Application number one, it is good to define our distinctive understanding of Bible doctrine and practice. It's good to define our distinctive understanding of Bible doctrine and practice. Going back to 2 Timothy 1 that I read earlier, Paul challenges Timothy, and as you know, this is the last letter Paul wrote. Shortly after this, he was beheaded. So it is, in a sense, his last will and testament to the young man that he had mentored and left to pastor in Ephesus. And he says, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in you the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And then in verse 2 of chapter 2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Retain, guard, entrust. Timothy, preserve sound doctrine. Protect it and pass it on this treasure of truth that you have received. Church history has abundant evidence, doesn't it, that doctrine is prone to decline. The natural tendency is to drift from truth. So a very strong and specific statement of doctrine tends to slow that drift. And I want our doctrine preserved for my grandchildren And my great grandchildren. I don't want them to lose what men have suffered and women have suffered to pass down to us. Application number two it's also good to imitate early Baptists. Yes, differences matter, but they're not worth fighting on social media over. Always avoid spiritual pride. It's so easy, isn't it, to get the big head. I know more than they know. My truth is superior to what they're teaching. Differences matter, yes, but avoid spiritual pride and promote unity in core truths, in the core truths, of the gospel a third a third application and by the way I'm not saying don't ever fight when there's genuine false teaching when there's genuine uh, efforts to lead away from the truth of God's word but in the modern reform movement it's far too easy to fight over little things third It is good to ground our children in the comprehensive truth of God's word, which I find very well outlined in a confession like this. Listen to Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Again, another young pastor that Paul has mentored. And he says, but as for you, Titus... Speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Speak the things fitting for sound doctrine. And then do you know what he does in the rest of chapter 2? He gives instructions for older men and older women, young women, young men, and slaves. (laughs) Fitting for sound doctrine. In other words, Titus, teach the church to apply doctrine to life. Apply doctrine to life. Our culture is continually challenging our children. Is there really only one objective truth, or does each person have their own truth? Is my identity defined by my psychological self-perception of my sexuality? Do I have the authority to force my body and everyone around me to conform to who I imagine myself to be. That's what our kids are facing. Those are the lies our culture is selling today. Some of those we barely saw on the horizon 10 years ago. And 10 years from now, it will be all new twists on old deceptions. How do we best counteract that? Carl Truman is a church historian, a philosopher, and a theologian. And in his book, Strange New World, he suggests there's too much stimuli response training of our children in church. A new lie is suddenly, you know, popular in the culture, and and the church says, oh no, here's the latest cultural lie, and kids, here's how you should think about it. And that's good. We should teach our kids how to think about the primary lie being told at the time. But he also recommends a more proactive approach. Give our children a broad, deep foundation in the truths of Scripture so they're able to recognize the lies for themselves. That way they're not helpless when they leave mom and dad. They know how to think biblically about the culture's lies. And he recommends that confessions and catechisms are a wonderful help in this. And he recognizes some people are going to think, oh yeah, a document written in the 1600s, how's that going to help us deal with transgenderism? You'd be surprised. He says the strength of these historic documents, quote, is providing solid, general Conceptual foundations by which the church can approach a contemporary challenge. Confessions help us not only see that certain things are wrong, but to see why they are wrong in terms of God's truth as a whole. Funny enough, it turns out that that was on the hearts and minds of the English Baptists in 1689, too. At the end of their introduction, they said this, And truly there is one origin and cause of the decay of religion in our day that we can only mention in passing and earnestly urge its correction, namely the neglect of the worship of God in families. Is it not the case that the glaring ignorance and instability of many and the irreverence of others can be justly blamed on their parents who have not trained them up in the way in which they ought to walk When they were young. So they felt that publishing this confession would help parents in grounding their children so that they would not be ignorant at best and irreverent at worst when they left home. Well, there's my argument for why the study of this confession is helpful. Not only for our own spiritual benefit, but for the spiritual health of the future generations in our church. Let's pray. Our Father, as we think about world history and we think about the forces that have been at play... with an evil enemy behind them, to put to death the gospel and your scriptures, to try to prevent it from ever reaching this generation. God, we marvel at your wisdom and your power to preserve your truth down to today. And God, we, we know that the enemy will not outwit you. He is doomed to defeat. Truth will endure to the next generation. But God, we would like the privilege of being a part of that and not playing a part in spiritual decay in your church and in our culture and in our children. So, Lord, help us, please, by your spirit to take these things seriously. God, to learn from those wiser who've gone before. Lord, to apply it, to live it, as we're talking about in Proverbs, to guard it and to pass it on. Lord, again, I ask that you would continue the good work that you've begun in this little flock for your glory, for our good, and use us how you will, Father. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.